This is Focal Point for Wednesday, the 4th of February, 2009. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Padney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you? Well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. We've had a slightly longer break than usual between our podcasts. We normally do them every two weeks, but it's been about three weeks now, and I'll take the credit, I mean the blame for that, uh, because I had a bit of a holiday, and the place where I was staying had wireless internet, but just for the two hours which we had set aside some time for scheduling our podcast, it stopped working. It did, didn't it? And um, But I think we're going to do a bit of a podcast on cloud computing, perhaps as our next podcast, or maybe in the near future. And I think that that episode is illustrative of some of the um, one of the downsides, perhaps, of cloud computing. There's a lot of upside, but uh, there are some issues of reliability that I think last week's uh, attempt at a podcast illustrated. That's right. That's right. So let's make next uh, our next podcast about cloud computing. Okay, great. Good. So today we're going to be talking about something different, and. Uh, this is an area where I think you are much more of an expert than I, Chris. Uh, you probably say that's true of every area, but uh, yes. <laughs> this is one where definitely you're the expert, and I'm willing to concede that. So here's the, here's the topic. So recently, Australia's Department of Broadband Communication and Digital Economy uh, prepared a draft paper called Future Directions for the Digital Economy. So what does that mean in plain English? It means that we're talking about the Internet and society. So at about the same time this happened, the new Democrat administration, the USA White House, is also promising to give citizens better access to their government through the Internet. And the new U.S. President, Barack Obama, he's uh, already gone on the record as being an avid tech user. He seems addicted to his BlackBerry. I think, Chris, you said that it's been called the BarackBerry. That's right, it has. Yes, and, and so this seems to be the, the trend that other Western democracies are also t- talking about doing similar sort of things. But as we know from politics, what politicians say and what they do can often be worlds apart. So today we're going to be talking about what's been proposed in these digital economy initiatives, how it's planned to be rolled out, um, and what we think of this whole idea. You've had a look at this Future Directions paper. Uh, just give us the, the big picture, the overview. Yeah, well, it started um, last year that the, the government was interested in finding out what the population at large thought about the idea of a digital economy, what sorts of things um, were needed to implement a digital economy. And so they held a series of workshops with stakeholders. And something they did, which was quite novel for the Australian government, was to start up a consultation blog, which they claimed was the first attempt at blogging by the Australian government. So in the past, um, individual politicians and political parties have had blogs, but this apparently is the first time that the government itself has used blogs to consult the population. Uh, That was quite novel. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't hear about the blog until after the consultation period closed, so... um, Even so, there was an enormous response to it. There were over 1,500 comments left on the blog by various people. Um, So in terms of consultation, it had a a very big response. But uh, a lot of that response, as you'll hear, is a negative response. And I think it's an interesting comment you made there, Chris, that you didn't hear about it till afterwards, and I didn't either. And uh, we're fairly tech-savvy, and we, we keep up to date with a lot of things that are happening on the internet, particularly in Australia, and neither of us heard about it, and it certainly didn't get as much publicity as, say, the internet censorship plan, which was, I guess, a bit more controversial, so it, it 
it got a bit more mass media headlines, not just the government's um, official press releases. So, so that's going to be one of the challenges that any any government who's trying to um, encourage use of the internet by citizens to communicate with the government is going to have a challenge just getting the word out there that these these facilities are going to be available. That's right. So perhaps novelty was one of the problems there. The, when I first heard about it, and I think it might be the same in your case, was the article in the Sydney Morning Herald following up on some of the negative comments that Australian bloggers had to say about the, the government's um, digital economies blog. So the SMH article uh, had lots of negative comments about the blog, one of which was that they didn't use sort of standard blogosphere software, and one of the consequences of that was that it wasn't as well... Um, uh, well publicised as it otherwise might have been, um, whereas it was hosted on a, a government website. If it had been out there in the blogosphere at large, it might have been. It might have come to people's attention sooner rather than later. Yeah, and it didn't even look like a blog. Did it? it looked like a website which had a, which had a little bit of commenting facility on there. But people nowadays, especially experienced internet users, who are the ones who are going to be using this first, they know what a blog looks like. You go to a website and you can tell this is a blog, whereas this particular site didn't look like a blog at all. That's right, and that's another one of the, the, the criticisms. Was it, in terms of blogs, it wasn't it wasn't up to scratch. It, as you say, it looked more like a, a government website with a series of statements, a series of postings with a comment form attached. It wasn't really run in the same way that people expect when they visit a blog. You leave a comment, the comment gets posted, and your comment might be followed up on rather rather quickly. Whereas what happened was you left a comment. Then there was a moderation period and eventually your comment appeared and there were no responses to individual comments. There were just a couple of postings in the blog later on touching on some of the comments that uh, the people had left. So in terms of consultation, it wasn't very consultative. It was more of a one-way dialogue in which a series of postings was made with questions attached, comments were left by people visiting the blog and that was it. There wasn't a real uh, dialogue of people leaving comments and discussion between commenters and that sort of thing that you come to expect from active blogs and from uh, Web 2.0 forums. And one of the things that came up as people being a little bit sceptical about this was there were, uh, as you said earlier, the blog was moderated, which meant that when you contributed, somebody would review your comment before publishing it. Now, that in itself is not a negative thing, and there, there are lots of blogs that are moderated that way. It kind of makes sense for an official blog to have some sort of moderation. And one of the concerns was that the government would censor the sort of things that they didn't want people to be talking about and censor the negative comments. But actually, when I looked at it, there were a number of very negative comments that were being let through. Now, we don't know what was blocked, but it seemed like the moderation process was still allowing a reasonable amount of uh, a negative commentary about the government's position and their, and their stance on various issues. Yes, indeed. I think, um, as you say, that, that concern about moderation and what, what gets moderated out does uh, cause people to be a bit concerned. But as you say, there were so many negative comments, the overwhelming number of them related to the government's plans to introduce mandatory ISP level filtering that uh, it seemed that they were letting through a lot of negative commentary which is which was encouraging but the downside of that was that a lot of it was off topic so there were a series of postings to the blog on different aspects of the digital economy um, one of which was the regulatory environment which included things like um, ISP level filtering that was the appropriate place for those sorts of comments to be left 
but instead they overwhelmed feedback on every single topic. So in terms of moderation, in terms of structuring the blog, they could have done a better job so that all of those negative comments were, um, were on topic and were associated with the right, the right posting rather than being spread out across all of the topics and drowning out some of the, co- uh, the topics, the comments that were on topic. So why do you think that is, Chris? Do you think it's because people felt frustrated because they uh, thought that they weren't going to be heard? Or do you think that it's just the normal, the, the natural instinct of many internet users just to comment on whatever they feel like without considering whether it's part of a coherent thread and whether it's actually going to mess up the, the blog posting? I think both, Gihan. I think in the first instance, the regulatory environment posting was the second last. So it was done over a series of, over a couple of weeks or a few weeks, and it was the second last posting in the series of postings that touched on the regulatory environment and the ISP level filtering, which is what people are really angry about. So people didn't have a chance to comment in an on-topic way until the second last posting, so they got that off their chest right, to, right off the bat. And secondly, even even so people would comment kind of in an on-topic way, regardless of the topic, saying, well, the first thing you need to consider is ISP-level filtering. So I think people... So, so both, of, both of your comments are right. Because of the way they structured the blog, the poor way they structured the blog, people got the, the filtering issue off their chest nice and early, and so it, it polluted a lot of the comments uh, in other topics, and people were going to do that anyway. So, so you're right on both counts. And another another aspect of this blog is that like we just use the term ISP level filtering. So you and I know what that means, and people in the uh, technology field know what that means, and that is the right way to describe it. But of course, everyone is talking about this. The people who are talking about it are calling it censorship of the internet, internet censorship. So it certainly would have made it easier for people who are using the blog if there was a topic called internet censorship, but of course they're not going to call it that. Um, however, if they want to make the blog really accessible and useful, they should be willing to to make it accessible and useful. And one of the problems, I think, is that the blog is written in a very formal language. It's, it doesn't look like it's been written by a person, so there's no personality that comes through. It just looks like something that's been created by a government, and that automatically prohibits it from being useful. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And I also think that that issue of making, dividing the topics up um, so that people could find the, the internet censorship topic more easily means that perhaps a blog wasn't really the right way to hold a public consultation. If they really wanted to do it properly, I think a web forum might have been a better way to have done that with individual topics there up front rather than staggered over several weeks, one of which was internet censorship. So if they'd had all these topics uh, arranged in a forum style with them all available from day one, then I think that would have been a better approach, a better Web 2.0 approach than a blog would have been something like a web forum. I think one of the the challenges of that forum idea, because I I totally agree with you, Chris, I think forums are much better um, facility than a blog for this sort of discussion. But I think one of the challenges is that the government is trying to restrict the discussion to certain topics. And as soon as you make it a forum, you then open it up for anyone to talk about whatever they like. Now, I think if they're 100% serious about getting input from the community on any issues related to the digital economy, a forum is the right thing to do. But I wonder whether they then feel that they're setting up some expectations that they can't meet or maybe even have no intention of meeting. Yes, perhaps, yeah. 
um, which is a tricky thing because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think. Like, do you think that this is a genuine attempt to engage the community or do you think it's a little bit of window dressing? It's a good question, Gihan, and I think we'll find out when they actually act because it's it's been a fairly poor consultation process and that might just have been because they've got government heads and they think that they need to do it in a government website run by government staffers. Um, some of the postings suggest that they really do have their heads screwed on and they're aware of the issues because they ask some really sensible questions mm. um, and the follow-ups were... In, uh, indicate that they're well informed. So that's a, that's good and it's a good start. The proof of the pudding is in the eating and it'll really be a matter of how they follow up on this consultation process and whether they actually implement some of the ideas that have been presented to them and whether we get a get a, a digital economy, something, some infrastructure that can help a, a digital economy flourish in Australia. And I think it's worth pointing out, Chris, at this point that when we say government, there's actually two there, there are two parties involved here. There's a, I don't mean political parties, but there is the public service. So it's the department which has published this blog. And of course, then there is the political party, which is Kevin Rudd, Stephen Conroy, and the Labour Party, which is, current, which is overseeing this. And they may have very different agendas. And you and I both enjoy the ABC TV series, The Hollow Men. <laughs> Which is which kind of exposes and is a parody of the the way the government works. And people who watched Yes Minister in the 80s, I guess, would remember this as well. That they may have different agendas, and what the public service puts forward and the sensible responses that are coming back are coming from the public service. But I wonder whether the minister and the federal government are actually as interested. Well, I didn't think uh, the Hollow Man was a parody, gear, and I thought it was a documentary. <laughs> yes. Well, so for people who haven't watched it, it's worth watching. And uh, they've had two series, and they're out on DVD now, so it's definitely worth watching. Very funny. Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. So we've got um, from some of the co some of the postings, as I said, they they really do um, appear to be well informed. So presumably it's public service staffers that are putting forward these questions, having been vetted by uh, the policy unit, let's say. Um, but there's the, you know there's this overriding issue that the government wants to implement something as as clueless as ISP level mandatory filtering. And so you've got this, you've got this sort of uh, tension between what they're saying they want to do, and, and it, which is to help the digital economy flourish, and at the same time implement something like mandatory ISP level filtering, which will, which will slow down broadband speeds, for instance, and work against that. So, yes, we'll have to wait and wait for the implementation to judge where their hearts really lie. That's right. And so, the, the, as you said, that the really good example is that this what we keep calling mandatory ISP filtering or what the general population is calling internet censorship is something that's coming from the from the political party of government and maybe their policy unit, but it certainly wouldn't have been something that's proposed by the by the department that's responsible. Yeah. Okay, so you've said you're absolutely right, Gihan, a few times, which I'm very pleased with. Um, but I also sent you something about the, the new White House administration has set up their own blog, which I – and as sent you to an article where um, they were praising some of the things that they were doing with blogging, but you disagreed. You thought that they weren't so good. I agree with the, the points um, that they raised that praised the blog in the style that it's written is much more engaging than the style used on the Australian um, consultation blog. So it's yeah, full of government speak and um, looks very formal and official on the Australian government's blog. 
But the White House blog, as you say, is much more conversational and personal, which is a, a much more positive aspect of that blog. But one of the problems with the, um, with, with the White House government blog is that you can't comment on it. There are no publishing of comments uh, for any of the postings. You can provide feedback, but none of that feedback is published. So in terms of um, engaging uh, the electorate, the White, House, the White House blog falls short um, in that regard. But having said that, Gihan, elsewhere on the White House government website, uh, there is a very lively forum, which is perhaps that's, you know, that's, that's certainly a positive thing. They've got uh, a forum elsewhere on that whitehouse.gov website, and there's some very lively discussions of various issues related to U.S. politics uh, taking place in that, that web forum. So on the one hand, yeah, no comments on the, the government blog, the White House government blog but uh, a very active forum where people can provide feedback. Okay, so I guess there's going to be somewhere that there's a mix of the two, which is actually what we would consider ideal. And it's, it's like individuals or organizations blogging, small organizations. Uh, a good small organization blog is it's, it's written in a personal style. It invites comments. It allows comments and criticism. It may be moderated, but the moderation is okay. It's, not, it's nothing sinister. Um, and it's engaging and lively, and people can find it easily on the Internet, and they'll refer other people to it. That's that's right, and that's what Web 2.0 is about. It's about this architecture of participation, and so you need things that uh, encourage people to participate, and not having the ability to comment on blog postings is a disincentive. Okay, so we've got these two examples. So one is the Australian government, which seems to have a very formal blog, but is allowing comments, and the other one's the US, gov uh, US government, uh, the US White House specifically, which has a blog which is informal and engaging in its writing style but doesn't invite comments and so I guess somewhere there'll be a mix of the two and there's another story Chris that we saw uh, before Barack Obama was inaugurated as president that uh, a story about him talking about how he's addicted to his Blackberry and was refusing to give it up when he became president and there is a I think it's called the US Presidential Records Act which states that all correspondence between the president and anybody must be kept uh, and stored so that it's available for the public record. And one of the concerns about a, pr a president having access to some sort of private correspondence tool, like a BlackBerry, would mean that that becomes, that falls through those cracks. Well, well, I do question whether that's really the case. Surely that correspondence can be intercepted and, and recorded for posterity and uh, in keeping with the, the Act. So I'm not entirely sure whether that is a real restriction and limitation. Is he insisting that he has his BlackBerry and uh, there's no way that uh, any comments are intercepted? I, I'm not sure about that. The, the latest I've heard is that he's been allowed to keep, I don't know whether it's a BlackBerry or some other personal communications device, and only a few limited number of people have his email address and they've all been briefed by White House staff in what they can say. In, in that sort of correspondence. Now, I don't know whether that's being monitored or not, and I don't know whether it's been monitored and recorded or whether that's just a private communications tool. Now, personally, I think there is no need for the President of the United States to have access to something like that. Um, he or she in the future is, does not have that sort of need. They're going to be surrounded by minders, by advisors, by people like that. They're all, it's almost a 24-7 job. Sadly, they almost don't have a personal life, so I don't see they need a personal communications tool. 
Yes, I don't really understand the excuse that uh, President Obama's given for for refusing to surrender his BlackBerry. He said that he needs it so that he can sort of break out of the bubble in which he's trapped that you've just referred to and communicate with ordinary Americans. But I don't think anyone is going to be given uh, the BlackBerry's um, contact details, so I'm not sure how they're going to be able to contact him in the first place to help him break out of this bubble. And, you know, there are plenty of other means of ordinary Americans providing feedback to the president. Um, it doesn't need to be direct to his BlackBerry. As, as we've just mentioned, there's this forum on the, government, the White House website, which has got some very active um, conversations going on it that, he's, that I can read, so surely he can read them too. I'm not convinced by the excuse that he's given for hanging on to it, and maybe it's all a bit of theatre, I'm not sure. And you mentioned that there's a, another device that he's been given. Uh, you're right. This is a, a very secure device uh, that um, – who are his minders? Is it the FBI? I the Secret Service. Secret Service, that's right. They've, they're concerned that um, having the BlackBerry will make it easy to track and locate him. Um, and so he's been given this super secret squirrel device that um, is thoroughly encrypted and doesn't uh, give out its location, and so he can communicate securely through that PDA um, without compromising any of the secret services um, security issues. Yeah, so th it's going to be an interesting, interesting to see how that plays out. We've obviously in the in the United States, the, the citizens of the USA now have a president who's very tech savvy and understands some of these technology issues, and he not only just understands them, but seems to be very pro technology. However, and again, if you watch the Hollow Man, you might get some idea of this. The person who's installed as president doesn't necessarily mean that they are the leader of the free world, as some people describe them. It's just somebody that the party puts forward who's most likely to be elected. So whether his preferences are going to match the party's policy and the party's direction is, is something that will it remains to be seen. That's exactly right, Gihan. So all, all of this talk and posturing, um, time will tell. And we'll see whether, you know, they actually follow through on the sentiments that they've expressed so far. So I guess watch this space and in future podcasts we'll be able to follow up on some of these things. We will. We'll bring you updates as, as we come across them. Live so from the BlackBerry. That's right. So we've had a few technical issues and a few technical glitches in recording this podcast. So apologies if there are times when the, the recording breaks up a little bit. We're not quite sure what that is. Uh, we seem to be continually improving and then occasionally have a little bit of a setback, but I think we've got through most of what we needed to. Yes, apologies for that. Um, so next time, Chris, as we discussed, uh, we'll talk about this idea of cloud computing. Uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time, Chris. Big deal. Thank you, Han. Thanks. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot -E -E com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time. <laughs>